Our story this morning picks up in 2 Kings, verse 24. It's a relatively long text, but I would ask if you would, open up your Bibles, get comfortable, sit and listen to the story so that you will know what is going on and be blessed by the reading of the Word of God. This is a wonderful example of how God speaks in stories, but it is the Word of God, and it is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. Hear now the very Word of God. Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for eighty shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give me your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God so do to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, When the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, A sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots 
and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it, went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they have gone out into the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will, fear, will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us go and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them, after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would show us your wisdom, your power, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, please impress upon our hearts that you alone are king, that you are sovereign, and that, O oh Lord, you deliver. We thank you for this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We hear this story and perhaps you say to yourself, 
Not again. Enough with the Syrians and the attacking already. We've seen this over and over again, haven't we? It's one of the the benefits of going through the text here consecutively, through this story upon story. You remember the Syrians attacked in 1 Kings chapter 20. And then they attacked again in 1 Kings chapter 22. As a matter of fact, they've already besieged the city of Samaria once. And just earlier in this chapter, in chapter 6, They had attacked a third time. And now for the fourth time, the Syrians are attacking Israel. We might wonder to ourselves, if we put ourselves in the place of someone living in Samaria, what's going on here? Why is God letting this happen? Doesn't God realize that the Syrians are the bad guys? And that he's supposed to polish them off? Why do they keep coming back? Is it because God is weak? Well, if we look back, though, and think about when the first Syrian attack began in 1 Kings chapter 20, and we look but one chapter earlier, and we see in 1 Kings 19 that the people of Israel gave up on their worship of the Lord God right after he had proved himself on Mount Carmel we see that really God is not to blame for these continued attacks. These continued attacks are lessons that God is trying patiently to teach the kingdom of Israel. But they just don't get it. So the Syrians keep coming. And the lesson that we have this morning is not just applicable to those who live in Samaria, not just applicable to those who are Israelites, but to you and to me as well. Because the lesson here this morning is that God delivers. That He is the only one who delivers and that He is powerful to deliver. And so we will see here a situation that is not very dissimilar to our own. We will see a desperate world, much like our world. Then we will see a divine deliverance much as you who know the Lord Jesus Christ have seen. And then finally, we will see a definitive outcome, how the Lord puts an exclamation point on His deliverance. A desperate world, a divine deliverance, and a definitive outcome. And I would ask those who are young amongst us, who didn't get a children's insert this morning, to be looking out this morning for the words, Hope, faith, and promise. These are the words that come to us in the midst of deliverance. Hope, faith, and promise. Because you see, the first thing that we see in a world that is desperate is that a desperate world is desperate for hope. That is the case here in Samaria. There is a siege about the city. This is the second time the city has been attacked. You may wonder, why didn't the Syrians just roll over the city? Well, it's because it was built to be defended. It was built on top of a gigantic hill with big walls. And the army was not able to get in. So they did what armies used to do centuries ago. What they would do is surround the city and prevent any food from getting in or out of the city. You see, food has to get to the grocery store, right? 
It doesn't just spring up out of the aisles or out of the lights. Big trucks take it in from farms. And that was the case here in Samaria as well. They didn't grow food out of stones or out of city buildings. They needed to bring it in from the countryside. And the Syrians had completely cut off Samaria. So the irony here is the people in the city were safe from the army by the walls, but they were not safe at all from hunger. As a matter of fact, this siege had been going on so long and had so much damage that hunger is of prime concern, we see in the beginning of our passage. Now, you may not know what a shekel is, how big it is, how much it weighs, but one thing that you can know that will help you to understand it is that a shekel is about a month's wage. It's about a month's wage. Now, if I told you that you could go to the grocery store and buy a donkey's head for something like seven years' wages, you start to think about how bad this famine is. How'd you like, kids, if mom went to the grocery store and she bought one of those hard turnips and it only cost two or three hundred thousand dollars? You had to mortgage your house to buy one of these turnips. You know how much you love to eat them. Or maybe it's a Brussels sprout. It's not even good food. It doesn't say a steak cost 80 shekels. It's a donkey's head. Well, and then there's this dove's dung. A very small amount. Now, there's either one of two things that's going on here. It's hard to tell from the language. Either it's being used to burn fuel, or this is the Old Testament equivalent of mystery meat. You college students know this. When you go to the cafeteria, you have funny names for food. It could be that this is actually a form of pea that comes in a pod that's, quite frankly, disgusting. And so it gets the nickname Dove's Dung. And... You know, this is a bargain. This is only five months' wages for one of those. So you see, this is a very extreme famine. So bad that the Israelites were willing to break with kosher tradition because a donkey is not edible, according to Old Testament laws. It does not have a cloven hoof. But then the question I would ask you is, what is really going on here besides grumbling tummies and disgusting dinners? What's really going on here is the picture we get is one of complete desperation. You might imagine those who sitting around the fire as their stomachs growl saying, you know, we're not going to get saved like we were last time. You remember when Ahab was king and we got saved from the Syrians? Not going to happen. You remember when we heard that story about the prophet, Elisha, and the entire Syrian army was captured? Not going to happen this time. We're all doomed. We're just standing around waiting to die. It's a really desperate situation. But I don't want you just to focus on the Syrians, though. You might think the Syrians are the ones who are causing all this trouble. If just the Syrians would be gotten rid of, everything would be good. But when we realize that this difficulty, this siege, this famine is not caused by the Syrians. It's caused by God. It's God keeping His word in Deuteronomy 28, 
verses 52 to 57. When God begged Israel as they were about to enter into covenant with Him, He said, If you worship other gods, and if you reject Me, this is what will happen. Enemies will come against you. They will siege your cities. You will have no food. Your women will destroy their children. This is what will happen. And of course, Israel had this word, and they just ignored it. And God is bringing it about. It's God who's in charge here. And we see the complete helplessness of the government. You know, isn't that the cry of our day? It seems more and more so every week. What can the government do to help? Can the government help our roads? Can the government help our companies? Can the government help our education? Can the government help this? Can the government help that? And here we see that the government is helpless. It can't do anything. Do you feel hopeless about your future today, especially as you watch the news? Then I would put it to you that your hope is in the wrong place. Because the government will not help you. The stock market will not help you. Only God can help you. Helplessness and hopelessness comes from being apart from God. This is a world that's desperate for hope, but it's also a world that's desperate for answers. We see it first in this woman who cries out for help. She says, help me, O king. And as a good, patient king, his first response is, what are you looking at me for? Can't God help you? It's pure cynicism. This king has no patience for her. And the story as it rolls out, it's a bit shocking Lurid, but do you notice that it's at least a little bit similar to another story of a woman and a baby and life and death? You remember that story in 1 Kings 3 where the woman came to Solomon and she said, My baby here. This woman wants my baby. And Solomon, who had prayed to the Lord for wisdom, gave her wise counsel from God, didn't he? There's only one problem. There's no Solomon here now. Because you see, King Jehoram doesn't look to the Lord for wisdom. He doesn't have any solution. He doesn't even have a bad solution. He just gives up. He walks away and says, I can't help you at all. You see, there's no answers here from the one who does not follow the Lord. None at all. It it reveals that there is a complete lack of divine wisdom in the kingdom. This shouldn't surprise us because Jehoram himself is desperate for an answer. He doesn't know what's going on. There's a little detail here in the text that he rends his clothes. And do you see? The text tells us the people see he has sackcloth underneath. Now, if you know your Bible stories, you know that people put on sackcloth when they are repenting. You might ask yourself, why is the king walking around with sackcloth under his clothing? Well, it's likely because he's at least trying to repent. Why would he try and repent? Well, maybe it's because during this siege, the prophet Elisha came up to him and said, You know, king, Deuteronomy 28 says that this is from the Lord. You see, it's not just pastors that read Deuteronomy. Prophets read Deuteronomy too. And he would walk up to him and say, The solution here is for all of us to repent. 
and to trust in the Lord and He will deliver us. And you can almost imagine the king saying, well, we may as well give that a shot. I'll put on the sackcloth and let's see what happens. But now the story comes of something that is horrific and you can almost hear him saying to himself, well, I have tried all this repentance and faith business and it isn't fixing anything. I give up. Who needs repentance? Who needs faith? God isn't going to come. He's not fixing anything. Do you feel like that sometimes? Because God doesn't answer your prayer according to your schedule. Or because God doesn't answer your cries the way you want Him to. According to your timing. Do you give up on God? Are you one of those who thinks about repentance and faith, thinks about believing in Jesus, but when your requests, when your needs, when your demands aren't met like this, you figure there's no purpose in believing in God? You see, that's what kind of a man Jehoram is. He wants God to come too. He wants God to answer his call. He has no patience at all. And look at the language that he uses. He says... May God do so to me and more also. Does that remind you of anyone? You see, he's tried the repentance of his father. And it doesn't get quick results. So what does he do? He breaks out his mother's mouth. These are the very words of Jezebel. May God do so to me if I don't take Elisha's head off. You would think he would know what the result of that was. Perhaps he's blaming Elisha for sparing that Syrian army we looked at last week. He's saying to himself, this is all Elisha's fault. This is a world that is desperate for answers. So he sends a hitman after Elisha. And Elisha knows that he's coming. And he tells them, bar the door and I'll speak to him. And that he does. He says, hear now the word of the Lord. God is going to work a work. Now, I want you to understand what Elisha is saying here. The first thing that he is doing is he is assuring them that deliverance is coming. We see divine deliverance and that deliverance is first assured. It's assured by the promise of God. Elisha says, by tomorrow... A sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel. Now, notice something. This does not mean everything's going to be all right when the sun comes up tomorrow. This is not little prophet Annie. What Elisha says is things are going to get better. Food is still going to be really expensive, but there's real food. No more donkey stew. You could get barley. You could get flour. And it's not going to be nearly as expensive as that disgusting dove's dung. He says things are going to get better. Relief is on the way. He gives a promise of deliverance. And the thing that we need to realize is when God promises deliverance, we are required to believe it. Even when those promises are unlikely. Like tomorrow, the grocery stores will be full. Or like 
Though you die, you will rise again and be with the Lord forever. Or like Jesus Christ will reign over all and before Him every knee shall bow. Or the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. These promises might seem unlikely in a vacuum, but we are required to believe them because they are the promises of God. God assures us of His deliverance through His promise, and He requires of us faith. Faith in that promise. Faith in Him. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of general vague faith that things will get better, or that spiritual things are good. Right? You know what we say, nobody grows in fuzzy land. Right? I'm talking about a specific faith and a specific promise of God. A specific promise that God will deliver His people. You see, you can have faith in wish promises that God has never made and it won't help you. You can believe and have faith that God will drop a 50-gallon bucket of potato salad at the next church picnic. But let me tell you, it is not going to happen. Why? Because potato salad is expensive? No, because God hasn't promised to give you a 50-gallon bucket of potato salad. He's promised to give you deliverance here in the text. So you are to believe in what God actually promises. And we see what happens to those who don't have faith. Look at the guard's response. It's pure sarcasm. Well, yeah, if windows opened up in heaven, we couldn't get food that cheap, prophet. Yeah, right. Now, imagine that. Parents, you've probably had, well, maybe not from your kids because they're always well-behaved, but maybe from a neighbor's kid. When you've, when you've said something, I, I imagine that maybe once or twice in your life you've heard the words, yeah, right, or as if. You know how that makes you feel, right? Now, imagine if you are giving the very word of God and this guard snaps back with his best little comeback. <clears throat> Maybe he's even been working on it a couple of days. This is what happens to those who do not have faith. They reject the promise. They reject hope. They reject answers. And so what comes to him is a threat after the promise. There is a word of judgment that excludes him from the promise Elisha looks right at him and he says, you'll see it and know it was true, but you won't get any of the benefit of it. Nothing at all. We see here that in the Old Testament, faith is just like it is in the New Testament. We are required to believe what God has said, even if it is something that perhaps makes no sense to us. We're required to trust Him. So Elisha gives this promise. He assures the people of deliverance and then as if it's some kind of local newscast. And now, over to the lepers. Our story sort of changes. We go from the king and the prophet to a bunch of lepers sitting around the gate having conversation. And we might say to ourselves at first glance, what do the lepers have to do with this? You have this great promise of God, and now leper chat? I don't see the connection. I don't see the connection between the promise of God and these lowly lepers. 
But you see, the connection is through the work of God. Because God doesn't just give deliverance assured, but He gives deliverance accomplished. The lepers are going to see the accomplishment of God's deliverance. And so they go out. Now, you need to understand that these lepers are not about great deeds. This is not Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger with makeup on showing that they're lepers. And they're going to come out and wreck the Syrian army with weapons they pull from everywhere. They basically are sitting around and say, well, we could die over here, or we could die over there, or we can go die over there. But maybe we might live over there. What do you think? This is what you call, in strict theological terms, a no-brainer. Die, die, maybe die. You pick maybe die. So that's what they do. They go off, and they go off to the Syrian camp. They have no intentions of doing anything or seeing anything happen. They just show up. Have you ever felt like that? Like it didn't really matter what you did? You said, well, disaster, disaster, disaster. Maybe disaster. God is in charge here. He's in charge of these lepers. He's in charge of your life and my life as well. Because He is actually the one at work. There's a little something that the text says that the ESV hides a little bit for us. Look at verse 5. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. That's the lepers. And then what happens here in verse 7? Some of you who have another translation may notice that there are actually two verbs at the beginning of this. It's not just they fled away. It's actually they arose and they fled at twilight. Do you see that? The lepers are just getting up to figure out what to do and what is happening at the same time the lepers are getting up. The Syrians are getting up. You see, God is already at work before the lepers even get going. God is working His deliverance before any human being is there. This reminds us of another instance when some people rose and got up when it was that period of time between day and night, and God was working a mighty work. They weren't lepers, but they were just maybe one rung above them on the social cast. It was just a group of old ladies. But they went off to a tomb, and they saw that God had done something and made that tomb empty. You see, these lepers go off, and what they see is a complete victory of the Lord God. The Syrians have been completely routed. They are gone. The whole camp is empty. They haven't even taken the things with them. They have literally run for their lives. You've probably seen this in a movie when it's a complete rout of an army. And they just drop their swords, and they run. There could be a bucket of jewels standing next to them, and they could care less. They just want to get out with their skin. And that's what they leave. They leave food, they leave clothing, they leave gold, they leave silver. Everything that they brought with them, they just take off. This is not unlike what happened at the first battle of the Civil War. You see, the northern gentlemen and ladies decided it would be a fun thing to watch a battle. And so they went out like a picnic to go watch a battle. There was only one problem. The Confederacy won the battle. 
And so as the Union Army was retreating, there was this pell-mell run and they left all their finery, their clothes, their umbrellas, their food, their picnicking, and they ran for their lives. That's what the Syrians are doing here. But do you notice what they're running from? Look at the miracle that they're running from. If I can put it this way, this is the most ridiculous miracle that is found in the Bible. The Syrians don't run from flaming horses and chariots. They don't run from a rushing river like in that Narnia movie. They don't run from even a small Israelite force. You know what they run from? Bumps in the night. They run from sounds, from wind. (laughs) They are defeated by nothing. There's really nothing there at all, and that's what they're defeated by. Now, it sounds kind of humorous unless you're a Syrian, or perhaps unless you're an Israelite that's just been delivered by nothing. But I want to encourage you. When you think there is no hope, when the hospital tests come back bad, when that test comes back with the grade that puts the pit in your stomach. When you've had that fight that you think maybe is the last fight ever that strained the relationship. I want you to know that God is in the business of granting complete deliverance and victory out of nothing. You see, this is a story that shows the truth of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28. That God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, the things that don't even exist, to bring about the things that are, so that no human being might boast. You see, God is in the business of winning complete victories, not even with lepers, but with nothing. This is the God acts in history. Does your God act like that? Is your God capable of those kinds of victories in your family, in your marriage, at your job, in your church? This is the kind of deliverance that God brings. And then what happens is, just like that scene at the empty tomb, where the people are standing around and they say, wow, what do we do? I guess we ought to tell somebody. These lepers are standing around and they realize that deliverance is not merely assured, it's not merely accomplished, but deliverance needs to be announced. There needs to be a herald to declare that God has won. And this realization hits the lepers. It hits them in two ways. The first thing is they have a desire to announce this. They say, this is not right. This is a day of good news. We can't keep this good news to ourselves. We have to give it to others. They also realize they have a responsibility. Because they say, if we don't share this good news, punishment will overtake us. Does that remind you of anything? You see, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have been delivered from more than donkey stew. You have been delivered from more than a siege. You have been delivered from eternal punishment and death. 
and delivered to life in the kingdom of God. How can you keep that news to yourself? You must be like these lepers and say, well, I'm only a leper, but this is a day of good news. I've got to tell people. And if I keep this to myself, I'll have a responsibility before God. I better go tell everyone. And that's what they do. Can you imagine? They might say to themselves, they're going to think we're crazy. Has that ever stopped you from sharing the gospel? He's going to think I'm nuts. How about if you went and said, well, you know, a wind came through Baghdad and all of Iraq is now peaceful. Yeah, right. You're nuts. That's the kind of news that the lepers had. That doesn't stop them. They go off and surprise, surprise, the king doesn't believe. Look at verse 12. He says, yeah, I'll tell you what happened here. The Syrians are hiding. As if they weren't already winning that they needed to come up with this new strategy. Now, this also makes it more ridiculous because it was just the day before that Elisha the prophet said, God's going to deliver. Basically, all that's happened in the intervening period of time is the king has slept. He has completely discounted what Elisha has said. He really knows what happens. You know, because according to his world, these kind of victories don't happen. Because according to his world, God doesn't really exist. Repentance doesn't really work. That's the world of those who don't believe. And the question then comes, is everything lost because the king won't act? He's putting on his pants saying, I'll tell you what they're doing. Is this great victory going to be kept to a few? Is everyone going to have dove's dung for supper again tonight? No. Why? Because our good friend, well, it's a different friend every week, it seems, but he keeps coming up. It's the servant with no name. You remember him? He came up when Naaman said, I'm not going to do this. And the servant with no name said, well, have you really thought about it? You see, it's a nameless servant of God who walks up and says, listen, you've got horses here. They're going to die anyway. Why don't you at least see if it's true? Elisha did promise it. And he comes up and steps up to the plate and sends out these horses. And what they find out is a definitive outcome has been established by God. First in the form of an affirmation, a definitive affirmation. You know, what is left for Israel to do but to go out and see? And so they do. They go out and they travel as far as the Jordan. They see the trail of stuff left behind by the Syrians. And they haven't just gone a couple of feet. They've gone way out there. So they are able to see that, yes, this is a complete victory. It's so complete that they don't worry about the Syrians anymore. They go back to the camp and they start plundering as if they had won. They know that victory is at hand. So they go out and they see the victory. But more than that, the victory is not just seen. It's heard. Look with me here at verse 16. You see, our author wants us to understand how God announces victory. In verse 16, the grocery bill comes down. 
How? According to the word of the Lord. And what happens? The captain dies. How? As the man of God had said. Verse 17. And in verse 18. For when the man of God had said to the king, three times in a row, three verses in a row, our author points out to us that everything has come out exactly as God has said. Contrary to everything we see, contrary to everything we know, the only thing that is sure is the word of God. And it comes out exactly as he says. How do we respond then when we hear the word of God? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you stake your very life upon it? Because what happens in the world is exactly as God has said in His Word. This is the definitive affirmation of God's victory. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story ends in a definitive judgment. Because you see, deliverance has come to Israel but not to everyone in Israel. You see, because not all believed. Here the mocking guard meets his end. And his death is meant to be a reminder to us of the danger of unbelief. It's repeated twice. Do you notice that? It almost seems odd when I read it in verse 18 and in verse 20. You remember that guard? He got run over by the crowd, just like God had said. He died. You remember the guard? He got run over by the crowd, just like God had said, and he died. You see, our author wants us to know that this world is indeed a dangerous place. But it is a dangerous place for those who disbelieve God. That's where the danger lies. That's what the author of Hebrews talked about in Hebrews 12, when he said that Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant. And the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He encourages you. He calls you. He demands to you this morning to see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who were warned on earth, much less will we escape if we refuse Him who warns from heaven. This is the call of the gospel. Repent and believe. Well, in conclusion, God does indeed deliver. He delivers especially because this world is a dangerous place. It is a desperate place. This world is a place where you are to trust Him now, not later. Where you are to tell of His goodness now, not later. That is the hope of the gospel, a sovereign God delivering His people by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this Word, and we pray, O Lord, that You would equip us to bring Your good news to a watching, desperate, hopeless, questioning world. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we go about your work, your ministry, that you would empower us by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you peace, now and forever. Amen.